Hello and welcome to Super Volcano, the 16th episode in the Crossing Thin Ice podcast series brought to you by Actuarial Risk Management. This is Dave Ingram and I am joined today, as always, by Max Rudolph. Today, Max will be talking about a risk from a super volcano. While normal volcanic eruptions are fairly common, super volcanoes are extremely rare and extremely dangerous best to listen carefully and learn where one might be located so that you can be aware. We hope the Crossing Thin Ice podcast series can help you with your ERM program. Our programs will sometimes look at particular risks like today and will sometimes consider particular aspects of risk management practice. By the way, nothing in today's podcast is intended to be investment advice. We are here to provide educational material. We hope that you also take advantage of our free newsletter and webcast for additional education on a variety of risk and risk management topics. Let's get started. A series of earthquakes felt in South Carolina or Yellowstone called a swarm are reminders that dormant risks can return, but typically have few global implications. A different type of seismic event, the supervolcano, would be much more impactful. There are two types of supervolcanoes. One results in magma flowing over large areas, creating large plateaus, and simultaneously releasing greenhouse gases. These events don't happen very often, but can create a mass extinction event. The second type creates the large eruptions that we associate with the volcano, while displacing a large amount of matter. The caldera remaining after the most recent eruption 600,000 years ago above the hotspot that forms Yellowstone National Park covers most of the region. Ash that fell from an earlier event at Yellowstone created ashfall fossil beds where animals at a watering hole were killed by breathing the ash, creating a snapshot of that time and place. While the Yellowstone region has had three major events over the last 2.1 million years, with the largest displacing 600 cubic miles of material, four other global events since 1800 provide context. Mount St. Helens at one quarter of a cubic mile in 1980 dropped ash far away, but had limited global impact. Mount Pinatubo with 2.4 cubic miles of ash in 1991 and Krakatoa at 4.3 cubic miles of ash in 1883 are familiar to many, but Mount Tambora is the only uh, one at 36 cubic miles of ash in 1815 that had global impact. The Indonesian volcano that erupted in spring 1815 was the largest during the Holocene period since the last ice age. The local impact was severe with many lives lost. Sulfate aerosols released by the series of eruptions spread widely after entering the stratosphere. This reflected the sun's energy and light, dropping temperatures an additional one degree Celsius during a period from about 1810, where the natural cycle also led to lower temperatures. This created the year without a summer, as crop failures and famine led to mass migration in Europe and America. Six new states were rapidly added to the United States as people moved west towards Illinois and Mississippi. A similar effect has been reported as fuel used by large ships has high sulfate content that leads to acidification 
but also reflects sunlight like volcanic ash. Recent regulations rapidly phase out sulfates in marine fuels and are already believed to have reduced the masking of greenhouse gases and their warming effects. The Earth's ecosystem progresses through interactions between plants, animals, and other organisms with weather and landscapes in a complex adaptive system. In addition, there are interactions prevalent between science, agriculture, finance, technology, demographics, culture, and politics. Every action has a reaction. The decade starting in 1810 led to high costs of food and transportation. Remember, the horses had to be fed perhaps leading to the invention of the bicycle. Napoleon's brief return led to political uncertainty in Europe. 1816 was the year Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein and Lord Byron wrote the poem Darkness with the first sentence, I had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished. This web of interactions and their consequences is personified by Thomas Jefferson. He advocated for the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 while president, resulting in gold payments due starting in 1818. In addition to his own debt, he co-signed a loan for an extended member of his family. The War of 1812 pressured the young nation's finances. A second national bank was formed in 1816, following the disruption from Britain's transition to sourcing cotton from India rather than America. The crop failures uh, stressed Jefferson's personal debt balances, but the new bank initially followed loose policy until clamping down in 1818. His loans were called during the Panic of 1819, uh, which was a deep recession. Upon his death in 1826, much of Jefferson's property was sold to pay off these debts, making it impossible for him to free all of his slaves late in his life. While few knew the origin of the conditions experienced at the time, the year without a summer provides a good example of the need for resiliency and to build up redundant supplies as a global community. Today, just-in-time supply chains are being replaced by just-in-case plans that reshore some manufacturing. We should learn from the past when a stress of only one degree Celsius fall in temperatures led to famine and other difficulties. Before we move on to part two of today's podcast, we want to tell you about the ARM Actuarial Data and Modeling Institute that supports a wide variety of actuarial tasks. The ARM Data and Modeling Institute provides insurers a modern solution to their actuarial modeling needs. Backed by ARM's network of highly experienced consultants, the ARM DMI supports clients in all modeling applications, including statutory and gap reporting, capital management, product development, business planning, M&A, IFRS 17, LDTI, PBR, actuarial systems implementation, and conversion. ARM has licensed software from two of the globe's most widely used actuarial software packages, FIS's Profit and Moody's Axis. We also use our own easily customized PAARS software, which is fast, cloud-based, and uses a modern data science architecture. The ARM DMI platforms make a great solution 
efficient cloud-based platforms, cost-effective offshore data scientists, and a deep bench of senior actuaries. You should explore how your business can benefit from the latest actuarial modeling technology. ARM will work with you every step of the way to provide you with reporting, capital management, product development, and business planning actuarial modeling expertise. Contact ARM today. Now, back to our podcast. What should I take away from that? Should I be concerned with a supervolcano itself or, or the indirect effects of it or, or what, what? What? Yeah, and again, for the for the listeners, just a reminder that these are, are meant to be tail events well beyond moderately adverse that really it's it's interesting to be aware of and think about whether you have exposure to things like this i i think the pandemic is a great example of that that we as an industry didn't do a great job of preparing for a pandemic even though it was you know right there in in front of us and if if you live near a super volcano and it explodes yeah that's a big deal the the direct impact is going to be huge you'll you'll probably die if you're right next you know living on the slopes of a super volcano but if you don't then the the indirect impact of the sulfates in the atmosphere that will partially blot out the sun and cool the planet for for a couple of years, that's going to materially impact harvests, and that'll be really the impact on on most people. How does the supervolcano eruption uh, affect climate change? Well, it's it's interesting because uh, a lot of the um, technical solutions that people are coming up with for climate change have their roots in in volcanic activity. But emissions from a supervolcano, like any volcano, are temporary. It's only a couple of years before the sulfates float back down to the ground and they're not in the atmosphere anymore. While the trend for climate change will continue as as we use uh, fossil fuels, with the new event layered on top, it creates a, a timing issue because it'll look like things have, have gotten better, but really they're continuing to get worse. And as soon as you take that cover off, then you recognize how bad it is. But now you're even further behind the curve. It, it doesn't replace or solve climate change, but it's it's something to be aware of. Yeah, oh, that's too bad. You mentioned it's it's really dangerous to be near a super volcano. So how many how many super volcanoes are there? How many are there around here, in particular in North America? Depends on on who is counting. The they use a logarithmic scale based on how much material would would come out of a of a volcano. That's similar to the Richter scale. So eight is ten times as bad as a seven type of a thing. And so it depends on who's counting. Uh, some will say six, some will say 12 or 20, and I'm sure there's all kinds of different different metrics out there. If you look at just the six, there's two within the United States in, in North America. One, and, and it's interesting because they're both tied to uh, or near national parks. Um, Yellowstone is is known as a, as a caldera and a, and a very big one that's gone off three times in the last two million years. And there's another one in Long Valley, California. It's it's just east of, of Yosemite. And so those are the ones in North America, while around the, the world, you'll, you'll see them in New Zealand and Indonesia. And, and it's interesting, if you look at the a map of the bigger numbers, like of there's 20 based on their, their metric, a lot of them do really follow that ring of fire around the Pacific. 
that goes like a circle through Asia down into Australia and then back up South America and, and North America. But that doesn't mean that there aren't also super volcanoes in Africa or Europe or uh, China. So if I want to plan for after the, the super volcano eruption, should I be expecting a mass extinction, Max? No, but that's a good thing to good question to ask. Um, the five previous mass extinctions that, that the Earth has, has experienced have often coincided with with these long periods of basaltic volcanic eruptions. Uh, and these are different than super volcanoes, but you've got over hundreds of thousands of years lava flows out of these uh, fissures. Uh, releasing carbon, making the oceans acidic, and, and warming the planet. For example, the, there are Siberian traps that opened up that created enough lava to cover the United States one kilometer deep, you know, which is just an incredible, the amount of lava to do that. You know, there was another event in, in India that wasn't quite as, as much lava, but these are big, big major events to create the mass extinctions. Yeah, sounds like it. You talked in the article about the year without a summer. Uh, how much did the temperature actually drop there that caused that? Yeah, as I described in the article, Mount Tambora in Indonesia erupted in 1815 and, and the sulfates entered the atmosphere. So if you were close by, you know, it was a big deal. Nearly 75,000 locals died in the immediate aftermath. The temperature dropped about one degree Celsius uh, worldwide. And, and this was when we were already in a, in a cold part of the sun cycle. So it resulted in crop failures, especially in the northern hemisphere. Although, you know, because this was 1815, you didn't have any method of communication from Indonesia to, you know, the United States or, or Europe or, or Asia or anywhere else. And so people didn't really know why the temperature had changed or why their crops were, were getting, they just weren't growing. They could tell that the sun was blotted out, and so they knew that was part of it, but didn't really know the, the real reason why. And so as a result, they thought everything was happening locally just to them. So mass migration followed that either from Europe to the U.S. or in the U.S. Uh, west from the coastal states to what is now Mississippi, Alabama, and, and Illinois. In fact, several states were formed right in the aftermath of that because of the, the additional people that came in. I think there's lessons to carry over to today through climate change, especially from a mass migration standpoint that, you know, there's mass migration could be a, you know, what they call a threat multiplier, something that it, it's actually causing um, all kinds of other things to interact and, and create things, um, you know, within our models that need to be thought about. So, you know, it's going to be one of the major issues of this century. So now we know a little bit more about supervolcanoes. Thanks, Max. So what do we do with that knowledge? Uh, how could this impact an insurer? Well, on a, on a smaller scale, the, the eruption that covered Pompeii, most people are familiar with that, but it, it had uh, four to six meters of ash. Mount Vesuvius is still there. It's still active. It's, it's likely to recur. It's a threat to, to Naples, Italy, and the, and the surrounding region today. And, and some even consider the area a small supervolcano. For insurers, a small eruption like Mount St. Helens, you know, which puts it in context of we're calling that a small eruption, can be covered using various forms of reinsurance and geographic diversification. But you get a large eruption like a supervolcano, it's really not insurable. 
the devastation would be totally total locally and, and very extensive due to the indirect impacts elsewhere. It really is a systemic risk. Well, thanks, Max. With record heat around the world this year, a year without a summer doesn't sound all that bad. But believe me, it would be an extreme disaster. We do not depend on agriculture for as much of our economy now as we did 200 years ago, but we do depend on agriculture for all of our food. And much of the world is not rich enough to simply spend their way out of the resulting food shortages. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Crossing Thin Ice presented by Actual Risk Management. If you found it valuable, please like, subscribe, and share with your colleagues. Thank you.